You're listening to Seed of the Woman, a podcast dedicated to telling the grandest story of all and to exposing the mystery of 666. Randall Gilmore here. In this episode, I'm going to share detailed connections between the biblical story of Noah's flood and mathematical calculations leading to the mystery of 666. And I think you'll find this interesting because it shows that the beast out of the sea's use of 666 at the end of the age is not just a matter of politics and economics, but also of religion. Religion that includes beliefs, values, and practices Satan inspired long ago. Over the years, I've heard a lot of speculation about 666 as the mark of the beast and why people at the end of the age are willing to receive it. But recently, I heard someone argue for the mark of the beast as something that government and big corporations will secretly insert into some kind of technology that they trick people into using, primarily because of convenience, or in the case of certain medical treatments and devices for managing your health, because of fear. Now, there's no question that some kind of technology will play a part in the rollout of 666 as the mark of the beast. But we can't overlook the role that religion will play, and not in some minor way, but at center stage, and as the primary reason why so many people will line up to receive the mark. I'll come back to this toward the end of this episode, but first, I'm going to share more about calculations of 666 tied to Satan's corruption of the story of Noah and the flood. And I'll get started with that right after the break. As I shared in the previous episode in Genesis 6 through 9, Moses structures his telling of the story of Noah and the flood around a detailed timeline, one that asserts Noah's use of a zodiacal calendar and that turns the sun's journey through its annual circuit into a symbol of Noah's historical experience on the ark. Now, I have to say that Noah was not the first person to use a zodiacal calendar to measure the length of a year. The first was Adam. And a claim like this should make perfect sense to everyone, especially because God informed Adam from the start that the lights in the expanse of the heavens were for signs and seasons and for days and years. That's Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14. Now we're not told exactly how much more information God gave to Adam about signs and seasons and years, but when it came to a day, the pattern was something God revealed right away. Evening and morning, the first day. Evening and morning, the second day. Evening and morning, the third day. And on it went. So Adam knew the pattern for the length of a day and no doubt connected it to what God said about the purpose of lights in the heavens. Similarly, when it came to measuring the length of a year, Adam would have paid close attention to the movements of the sun and the moon, the planets and the stars, in relation to the earth. And he had every reason to do so, not only because of what God said about the purpose of the lights in the heavens, but also because of the variation in the amounts of sunlight and darkness he must have observed from day to day, after his rebellion against God. 
You know, Jewish tradition holds that the first day of creation occurred at the time of the autumnal equinox, making the month in which the autumnal equinox occurred the first month of the year. And if true, it wouldn't have taken long for Adam to notice a diminishing amount of sunlight each day. It's even plausible that Adam would have wondered if the increasing amount of darkness was a consequence of his sin, whether the darkness would eventually extinguish every bit of light. Imagine Adam's relief when things reversed after the first winter solstice, and the amount of daylight began to increase each day. Eventually, Adam would have noticed the rest of the cycle, including the spring equinox and summer solstice, before the gradual return of the autumnal equinox and the beginning of a new year. But that doesn't necessarily reveal exactly which system Adam used for measuring the length of a year. We find that out when we compare the genealogy that Moses included in Genesis 5 with what he reports about Noah's age at the start of the flood, tucked away in the detailed timeline of the flood, indicating the use of a zodiacal year system. In the genealogy of Genesis 5, Moses reports the lifespans of Adam and his descendants for ten generations, which includes Noah at the end. And these lifespans are measured in terms of years. Adam, for example, is said to be 130 years old when Seth was born. And by the way, the only way for this number to make any sense is if Adam started keeping track of years from the beginning. And as for ties to a zodiacal year system, consider this. At the time of the genealogy in Genesis 5, Moses indicates that Noah was 500 years old when he fathered his sons. Later in Genesis 7, Moses states Noah's age once again, that he was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. The second mention of Noah's age is part of the detailed timeline for the flood, based on a zodiacal year system. So here's the thing. There's no reason to believe that Moses used two different systems for calculating Noah's age. One system in Genesis 5, and then a different system in the story of the flood. And if he used the same system, which he obviously did, then that same system was in play going back to Adam, who is said in Genesis 5 to have lived for 930 of these years. So by the time of the flood, human beings had studied the movements of the sun, the moon, and the stars in relation to the earth for nearly 2,000 years. And they had calculated the math and also the geometry associated with these movements. And as they turned away from God and His promise to restore all things through the seed of the woman, they began to invoke the power of the spirit world led by Satan, power they associated with the sun and moon and planets and with the numbers and even the geometry that God designed into their movements across the heavens. And this gets complicated very quickly because most of us are not used to paying such detailed attention to these things. But as I've already indicated, Satan saw an opportunity to corrupt what God had designed for his glory and turn it into something that undermines and discredits the story of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. So, for example, as the ancients studied the movement of the sun through the zodiac each year, they assigned the sun the number 36. Now, don't forget, during a zodiacal year, the sun rises each month for 30 days in one of the 12 constellations lying along its ecliptic orbit. That's the path the sun appears to follow in the sky as the earth spins on its axis. 
But the zodiac itself contains many more than just 12 constellations. As the ancients plotted this out in the northern hemisphere where they lived, they reckoned a total of 36 constellations. 12 that the sun passes through each year on the ecliptic, and an additional 24 that the sun passes by. Hence the number 36 coming to stand for the sun. So one of the many ways that 666 comes into play in the religion of sun worship is because of the number 36. So for example, when you add the numbers 1 through 36 as a series, in other words, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 and on to plus 36, the sum is 666. And in addition to this, no pun intended, pagans also constructed so-called magic squares for each heavenly body included in their religious corruption. A magic square contains a certain number of boxes joined together to form a square. Numbers are then assigned to each box from one to whatever the number of boxes there are, with these numbers arranged in a way that makes each row of the square and each column and each diagonal all add up to the same number. Of course, many people have heard of Sudoku puzzles, which mathematically work in the same way. All the rows add up to the same number, as do all the columns, as do the diagonals. So for pagans, the magic square of the planet Saturn, the first heavenly body of their system, Saturn's magic square contained nine boxes, with numbers from one to nine arranged in these boxes to make each row and each column and each diagonal add up to 15. In addition to Saturn, there were magic squares for Jupiter with 16 boxes and sums adding up to 34. For Mars, a square of 25 boxes and sums of 65. For Venus with 49 boxes and sums of 175. For Mercury, 64 boxes and sums of 260. And for the Moon with 81 boxes and sums of 369. Finally, in the middle of it all, for the Sun, with 36 boxes and sums of 111 for each row, each column, and each diagonal. And when you add all of these rows together in the magic square of the Sun, or all of the columns, you get a total of 666. Now once again, I want to be quick to say, I'm not the one who came up with the mathematical connections I'm pointing out. I remember one time talking about this and some people accused me of being a numerologist. So let me be very clear. I'm not the one who came up with this math and I'm not advocating its use. I'm simply telling the story of its ties to the religious corruptions of the biblical story of Noah and the flood. And as I said before, people on Satan's side leveraged the timeline of Noah's story and its association with the journey of the sun on its circuit through a zodiacal year to turn Noah into the sun god, and thus into someone represented by the number 36, and then ultimately by the number 666. Now you might be saying, okay, I get how people came up with the number 36 for the sun, but how did people come up with the numbers they associated with magic squares for the other heavenly bodies? And as I say, the math behind all of this is far more involved and far more complex than I could ever hope to cover in a single episode of this podcast. And it leads not only to worship of the sun and other heavenly bodies, but also to so-called sacred geometry and to pagan formulations of gematria, which assigns numbers to letters of the alphabet, 
yielding numerical values for words and names, including the name of the beast out of the sea in Revelation 13, in verses 17 and 18, which is formulated to return a value of 666. By the way, the name of the beast out of the sea is not the only name in the religious system of pagans that returns a gematria value of 666. For example, one of the names that pagans give to the evil spirit that they say represents the sun returns the same value. I'm not going to mention that name here. You can look it up if you wish. The fact is, pagans long ago assigned names to each of two spirits, representing each of the heavenly bodies associated with their so-called magic squares. And in the case of the sun, the name of one of the spirits returns a value of 111, the sum of each column, and each row, and each diagonal in the sun's magic square, while the name assigned to the second spirit returns a value of 666. Now I'll share much more about gematria in a future episode. For now, I simply want to stress the importance of knowing the historical practice of pagans using numbers as symbols of the sun, including the numbers 36, 111, and 666. Numbers that were corrupted in turn to become prominent symbols of their apostate religion and of its ties to the unseen spirit world led by Satan. Now, too many people overlook this history when they study Bible prophecy and consider how things will play out at the end of the age. And that leads to their focusing exclusively on the politics of globalism or on the technology involved in implementing something like a digital world currency or even on the drive to unite all religions under the banner of so-called tolerance. A one-world religion is on its way, that's for sure. But the history of 666 and its ties to sun worship and to the unseen spirit world led by Satan teaches us that this one-world religion at the end of the age won't just be a religion of tolerance. It will be a religion that fully embraces the worship of Satan and of his seed, the seed of the serpent. Never forget that's part of the deal that Satan makes with the beast out of the sea when he gives him his power and throne and great authority. Of course, there are many people today in government and positions of influence who have purely humanistic motives for thinking what they think and doing what they do. But there are some also in some of the most influential roles who also believe in the religion symbolized by 666 and who having rejected Jesus Christ and the promise of salvation and restoration of the world through him, have turned instead to Satan and to Satan's promise of his seed, the seed of the serpent, and who are intentionally seeking to bring about Satan's rule, believing that they will benefit from it in some way. So when Satan and the beast of Revelation 13 finally bring the number 666 to the fore and their rise to dominate the world, It won't just be a matter of global politics and economics or of technology and secular humanism. It will be a matter of religion, and not just a religion of tolerance, as I say, but a religion that leverages the corrupted symbolism of the sun and of the story of Noah and the flood to embrace Satan's counter story. So looking back now, we can clearly see the roots of this coming apostate end-time religion. Meanwhile, God had something very different in mind for the symbolism of the sun and also for Noah and his journey through the waters of the flood. 
more next time on Seed of the Woman.